Not sure what to make for dinner? Need some inspiration? Mondays and Wednesdays, join Gabriel and his food hero guests on The Dinner Special. And now, here's your host, Gabriel So. Welcome to The Dinner Special. I am Gabriel So, and I am so happy to have Brian Samuels of A Thought for Food here on the show today. Brian is a Boston-based food photographer, and on his blog, he shares a lot of vegetarian options and considers his diet 98% pescatarian. A Thought for Food was started in 2009 and has been featured in Food & Wine, Food 52, Savero, and Yahoo Food, just to name a few. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today, Brian. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Now, your blog, A Thought for Food, You've written that you enjoy reading about pages of food blogs to find out why people were crazy enough to start a food blog. Why do you think it takes a touch of crazy to start a food blog? Well, I think to at least have a successful food blog, you have to be pretty dedicated and it's very time consuming. So I think maybe not crazy is the right word exactly, but definitely devotion, passion, maybe a little obsessive. Maybe that's a better term. So that's really why I think a lot of people who end up writing food blogs, you know, have that type of personality. Right. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, a food blog is so much more than just the writing part. I mean, there's the photography, the food styling, you know, the promotion of the posts, you know, everything is involved with that. What part of food blogging do you find the most challenging and what comes the most easiest to you? I would say the most challenging would be the writing of it. I don't find myself to be a natural writer. I don't easily sit down and the words flow out. There's a lot of editing involved and sometimes I'll write and write and write and then delete a huge amount of it. And then sometimes, yeah, I'll just delete the whole thing and start over again. It takes a while. There are other times though where I sit down and it does flow out a little bit more and I feel like I do have something to say and it's a little easier to say it. But for me, the the most fun and definitely challenging element, but still the most fun and easy in a way would be photography. It's something that I've always connected to, just being able to capture my own experiences through the lens. Right. Now, what inspired you to start documenting your food adventures? So back in 2009, when I started the blog, it was sort of, you know, I guess the start of when food blogs became really big. There were definitely the big ones like 101 Cookbooks and Smitten Kitchen and a few other big ones that I read frequently and I was always, you know, creating their recipes and commenting on those posts. And I felt like I also had a story to tell about food and I was throwing a lot of dinner parties with my husband and or my now husband. And I want to share those recipes. And I wasn't necessarily expecting people to read the blog. I was just sort of sending it out to family members and friends who asked for the recipes. I just really felt like I had a passion for food. And it was a way for me to get that story out there. Right. Now, that actually kind of leads to my next question. Did you always have a curiosity for food and cooking? Yeah, I think ever since I was little, I was always passionate about cooking and showed an interest in it. I remember growing up and my mom making dinner every night. She was very much into making home-cooked meals. You know, we'd take out once in a while, but for the most part, she really wanted to make things from scratch and educate us about food. And she worked with a lot of cookbooks herself in terms of making dinners for us, making meals for us. And I just always took interest. As soon as I smelled something, I was always by her side asking questions and wanting to know how she was doing things. And eventually she had me help her out. 
right? So it sounds like it was a very natural thing for you to sort of get into food. Very much so. And it was actually something that I had considered for a period of time. I did think about going to culinary school, but the other passion, and we may be talking about this again later, but my other passion is film and movies. And I always wanted to make films as well. And so I went to film school. Right now. Yeah, you mentioned film and film school. Now, was the photography a, I guess, a blend of your film interests and your cooking interests? Yeah, definitely. I'll give you a little backstory. So I went to film school at Emerson College in Boston, and there I focused on documentary filmmaking, and I really fell in love with being able to tell stories, especially through film, but about the real world, about real people, and not necessarily scripted. And I ended up working for a documentary production company in Boston for three years, and that's actually where I started the blog was during that time. And I did see it as a way to sort of combine my love for documenting, not necessarily through photography, but just documenting my love for food and recipe development and playing around with recipes and educating people about food, all that. So it wasn't necessarily about the photography specifically at the time, but definitely about documenting it. Right. And how did it get towards being food photography? Now, was food photography the path that you were always pursuing? Well, I guess it wasn't the path that you were always pursuing. Would you say the blog sort of guided you towards the food photography? Definitely. I was shooting originally, if you go back to old posts, not that I necessarily promote that, but if you go back to old posts, I was using a Canon PowerShot you know, just point and shoot, taking pictures of the final dishes and maybe a few process shots along the way. But I wasn't using great equipment and I'm still learning about techniques about how to photograph food. My passion for food photography developed because of that experimentation. Right. And I've noticed that a lot of food blogs now are starting to use video a lot more too. Are you sort of dipping your toes into that or? That's a very good question. I've had a few people ask me about that and they said, hey, why don't you do videos? That seems like a good match. And it's funny, I don't have a huge desire to go in that direction. And I'm not saying that I won't, but I've fallen in love for still images and the power of the still image in such a way that I'm not rushing to make videos at this point, but it may change. Yeah, never say never, right? <laughs> well, you consider your diet 98% pescatarian. Can you explain to me and anyone who's not familiar with the term what a pescatarian diet means? Sure. So a pescatarian is someone who eats vegetarian and fish. Red meat is out. Poultry is out. Basically, any land animals are out. And for me, I started, I guess I'll give you a little history with that too. So when I was 15, I, just for health reasons, decided that I really wanted to cut out red meat from my diet. And I was still eating chicken and turkey, but really wanted to cut out red meat from my diet. And then from there, I took out chicken as well. But I could never give up fish or dairy because I'm just in love with those two things. And I think it allows me to be a little bit more adventurous in my eating in terms of dining out and experiencing things. And for me, that's such a huge part of my life is not, you know, passing up the opportunity to try something. So the 98% is really where I will usually have a bite of something. If we're dining out somewhere and it's really special and my husband eats meat, so he'll most likely get a meat dish when we're dining out. And I'll sometimes have a bite of that. And I still think meat is delicious. And he loves making uh, smoked brisket. And I'll have a bite when he's done just to try it out because I usually help him out a little bit too. And so I feel like if I'm doing it, I want to know what it tastes like. Of course. And it's just a sample. Exactly. 
And, you know, it's just a sample. And for me, it's really about where you're sourcing your ingredients from. And I make sure that what we're cooking here is as much as it's locally sourced, if at all possible. And I'm knowing the farmers that we're sourcing it from and all of that. And we don't do it often. So, yeah, I can justify it. <laughs> right, for sure. Now, in my home, we don't really cook much fish. For home cooks who shy away from cooking fish, I think maybe a few hurdles, for me anyway, is that I don't know how to choose fish at the grocery store. There are so many different kinds and I just get really like flustered and intimidated. <laughs> What's a good fish for beginners to try that's hard to mess up? Well, I think salmon is hard to mess up. It's fatty and <laughs> it's funny because a lot of people stay away from salmon because they don't like fishy fish. And I don't think salmon is, I never get that because I love fish and I love whether or not it has sort of a fishy taste to it, I'm okay with that. And I think they're getting that from like the oils and the fats from the fish probably, and especially with salmon. But in terms of fish that's hard to mess up, I think that salmon is really easy to work with. And it also holds up when you add a lot of flavor to it. So if you could do soy sauce, you could do like a marinade with it, and you'll still have like a really nice fish flavor with it. I think that some other fish are more delicate, obviously, white fish. And, you know, you don't want to mess around with that too much. So you have to be careful with that. So I always think salmon is really easy to work with. I think swordfish as well holds up nicely. They're both like very meaty fishes too. <laughs> we can make up words, whatever. Now, I have this idea that fish is really easy to overcook. Now, is there a simple method of cooking fish, especially for someone who has this misconception or this idea? I'm still learning that. I would not say I'm a pro at cooking fish at this point. I think I have learned that overcooked fish is not nearly as delicious as like seared fish. So with, you know, salmon, I'm trying to make sure that like the skin is crispy. If it still has a skin on it, skin is crispy, that it is cooked all the way through, but not overdone and that's i think working with high heat is really key with fish because you just want to get to that point where it just cooked all the way through and then you're not cooking any longer so starting off with high heat is really key but it depends on the fish and it depends on what you're doing with it and how you're serving it i also like to play around with other types of seafood like scallops and shrimp and we'll rotate that in our diet as well right and scallops also is a high heat right high heat usually oil butter of some kind it's delicious but that for me it's such an easy thing you see you make sure that the scallop is dry before you put it in the pan so you towel it off and then season it beforehand i always put a little salt and pepper on top of it first and then put it in the pan and not like stirring it up but letting it sit there and a couple minutes on each side and you're usually done with scallops perfect now there's also frozen fish versus fresh fish i tend to buy the frozen fillets because i feel like i don't know how to tell if a fish is fresh or not do you have any tips to share about you know how to tell if a fish is fresh or not well it's funny when i go to buy fish in the store i don't necessarily care if it's previously frozen or not i really look at where it's being sourced from with anything i want to buy as local as possible and coming from new england or you know the pacific northwest you can usually find local seafood in these areas but i know that you know, people in the middle of the country struggle with that. But I'm really looking for stuff that, and I'll have a dialogue with the person at the fish counter and say, you know, when did this come in? Where did it come from? Tell me about it. You know, I think when it came in is usually a good sign of freshness. And yeah, I mean, that's pretty much my thought process behind it. Like, is it a matter of days or is fish fresh 
within one day or something? It definitely depends. I think the frozen element really makes a difference because as soon as it hits the cold, it's obviously going to preserve it longer. So it really does. The, I think it depends on the fish. Yeah, the previously frozen doesn't bother me as much as the farm raised version versus wild caught. And, you know, if it's frozen and it tastes good, then great. You know, I don't think it matters either way necessarily. I don't think it affects the flavor of it too much. Definitely here in New England, I've had the luxury of being able to get fish that was caught like that day and having it. And it is certainly, there's a deeper flavor in it. You're tasting the ocean. It hasn't lost that flavor. And I think a fish that's probably been frozen sort of, you know, it sort of loses that depth. Right. Now, for someone wanting to cook more fish or wanting to cook it more often, are there some good online resources or books to help us demystify it? I don't think I can answer that too much because a lot of my cooking is experimental. I will certainly do some research about technique just through Googling, you know, how to, what's the best way to prepare scallops, sear scallops or sear salmon, seared salmon. And you find out what the best techniques are and watch videos and everyone has their different technique. I unfortunately don't have a one resource that I usually go to for that. Well, YouTube's always a good resource for me whenever I don't know how to do something. Like, I'm a very visual person, so, like, I can read something and I might not get it, but if I watch somebody else sort of sear a scallop or try to debone a fish or something, it hits me a lot easier. Definitely. It's actually funny that you mentioned that because we were members of a CSF, which is a community-supported fishery. So it's the same model as a CSA where you're paying a certain amount for a share and every week you get a certain amount of fish. And we decided to do we were given the option you could have it filleted which they give you the fillets or you can get a whole fish and we did one one summer where it was alternating weeks and we'd get a whole fish every other week and there was definitely a lot of YouTubing and we spent a lot of time in front of the computer bringing the computer in the kitchen and watching things over and over again and we bought a good filleting knife to do it and had some successes but it was a challenge no I mean I think and this is the first time I've heard of uh, CSF but I think it's such a great idea because, you know, that'll introduce you to also different types of fish as well, I'm sure. Absolutely. We got perch, ocean perch, which I don't think I'd ever worked with before. We had shrimp that we had to clean. You know, we had a lot of things and we had small fish that we had to clean and big fish that we had to clean. And it was, you know, scaling them and filleting them. And it takes a lot of practice. I really admire the work that they do when they do it so cleanly. So yeah, it was a great opportunity as well. Awesome. Well, here at the Dinner Special, we talk with food heroes about dinner dishes that are special to them and how we can make it at home. Can you talk about a dinner dish that is special to you and maybe the story behind the dish? Well, it's so funny. I'll give you a little backstory on that too. I mean, I grew up in a Jewish household. So we grew up with a, definitely the holidays. We had gefilte fish and matzo ball soup and traditional Jewish cuisine. But I wouldn't say that I grew up with too many traditional foods and anything that was like, my mom tried to mix it up you know, in our household. So we weren't always eating the same thing every night. But for me, I always get comfort out of making matzo ball soup. I think it's always, and it's something my husband loves. And, you know, even now on a cold spring day, it's so nice to curl up with like a mug of soup and like those dumplings are just so hearty. It's so satisfying and simple. 
it's really funny because I grew up with a specific technique for making matzo balls, and I can talk about that. So for me, whether or not I'm using a box mix or I'm using just matzo meal and then making sort of the mixture on my own, for me, the biggest technique is putting up a big pot of water and once you put the matzo balls in to close it, turn it down to a simmer and just let it sit for 30 minutes. And I always get like these like awesome light and fluffy matzo balls that are like, you know, I'm not into the dense ones. Some people are, that's okay. But for me, it always works. It's like that technique of just like, and you don't have to think about it, which is so nice. One of those meals where, you know, you can put up some veggie broth and you know make the matzo balls and you put it in the pot and you just forget about it for 30 minutes since that's one of my go-to's yeah and is this matzo ball soup recipe on the website i do have a matzo ball soup recipe it should be up there the one that i have up there is not traditional i actually mixed i did a spinach matzo ball so you mix in like not pureed but finely chopped spinach but you can also do pars i do a parsley one as well so it's there's sort of like green matzo balls which is kind of an interesting look as well awesome well let's say you were to invite three famous people over for your matzo ball soup who would they be okay well for the in the culinary world i think otolenghi would definitely be on the list i would love to have him for dinner anyway i think from the interactions i've had he has a great personality and would appreciate a bowl of matzo ball soup i think too michelle obama would be fantastic i think that for me you want people who are diverse but have like a similar like love for food and ingredients and where things are being sourced from so i would put her on the list you know i'm gonna go with two for now and Maybe at the end, I'll be able to think of a third. Okay, great. Well, let's say you were to have Yodam Odalangi and Michelle Obama over for your matzo ball soup, and you were doing a dinner and a movie with them. What movie would you pair with your matzo ball soup? That is a tough one. For me, if I was just doing like a foodie-themed dinner party, and it was like my favorite like food movie... It would either be Big Night or Ratatouille. So one of those two. It would just be a food focus. I'd want it to be comforting and fun and light. Right. Nope. definitely. Those are lively and fun movies. Yeah, those would be my two. Cool. Now, Brian, after a rough day, what is your ultimate comfort food? Oh, pasta. Any kind of pasta dish with butter and cheese is usually my like ultimate, you know, and it's something I usually crave after a really stressful day. I'll be like, I just need carbs and creaminess and it usually makes me feel a lot better. Great. Now, I call the next part of the dinner special podcast, The Pressure Cooker. I'm going to ask you seven fast and fun questions that we want to know your answers to. Are you up for it? I'm ready. Okay, great. Number one, which food shows or cooking shows do you watch? Top Chef. Okay. Number two, what are some food blogs or websites we have to know about? Well, I think most people already know these sites, but some of my favorites are Sprouted Kitchen and Happy Oaks is a favorite of mine as well. And Not Without Salt is one of my all-time favorites. I think Ashley was on your show actually at one point. Yeah, those would definitely be some of my top three. Perfect. Number three, who do you follow on Pinterest, Instagram, or Facebook that make you happy? Well, all of those people, definitely. <laughs> Is it sad that West L makes me really happy when I see those pictures? <laughs> we have a new house, so I'm like, I follow them just to like see what they're posting about. So that always makes me happy. I would definitely say Oda Lange's Instagram feed. I'm always on board with that. And Local Milk is a favorite as well. 
Great. Now, number four, what is the most unusual or treasured item you have in your kitchen? This is a tough one. And it's funny, the weird one that popped into my head is an egg slicer. I don't know why. And I don't think I have a connection to it, really. But it just like popped into my head. Because it's like, I don't think it's one of those things that people have. But I actually use it fairly frequently. Whenever I have, like, I want to do a big salad. That's like one of my big, you know, weeknight meals. If I want like a hearty salad, always put hard boiled egg on it. And it's just like an egg slicer. And you just, you know, it's in one you know, swoop. So I'm saying the egg slicer. Perfect. And it cuts it clean, right? It's not messy at all. Cuts it clean. And which I'm like being a perfectionist, especially with like decorating the plate. I want to make sure that the egg is like sliced evenly and everything. So and that's not even mine. I think it came from my husband's side of the family. But yeah, perfect. Now, number five, name one ingredient you used to dislike that you now love mushrooms, I think would be the one. I was always such an adventurous eater growing up, but mushrooms I was disgusted by. And now I'm obsessed with them. Just mushrooms in general you were disgusted by or a particular mushroom? Well, I think for the most part, we always had it with chicken, like in a chicken dish, or it was like on top of pizza. And my sister loved it. And I think I just hated it because she loved it so much. So it's just to spite her. But I am obsessed with them now. Awesome. Number six, what are a few cookbooks that make your life better? I, for the most part, look at cookbooks for the pictures to give me inspiration, I think. Recently, the ones would be, well, definitely plenty. All the Odalangi books, I always am going back to them. Ashley's book, Not Without the Date Night Inn, I've been going to. The same goes for magazines as well. I subscribe to a lot of food magazines, and usually I go through for the pictures. Bon Appetit. I love the new Sifted magazine by, I think it's Sift or Sifted, the King Arthur's Flower publication. Great pictures, and it just gets you thinking. Because it's so baking-focused, it gets you thinking outside the box of how to capture baked goods. Awesome. Now, finally, number seven, what song or album just makes you want to cook? Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. <laughs> or uh, Nora Jones' Fly Away With Me. I think that's what the album is called, but the Nora Jones album. When I'm cooking, for the most part, I want like that chill music with like a glass of wine and you know just stirring, and it mellows me out. Awesome. Well, congratulations, Brian. You have officially survived the pressure cooker. <laughs> Thanks. Brian, thank you for taking the time to join me here on the Dinner Special Podcast today. You're all over social media. What's the best way for us to keep posted with what you're up to? Definitely through Instagram is more of my day-to-day. My handle is my food thoughts, which is also my Twitter handle. So definitely through Instagram in terms of more day-to-day. And, you know, it's beyond just the food world. It's also, you know, I put up pictures of my dog and, you know, where I am and what's going on in life. And Twitter as well. So same handle. And then, yeah, those would be the top places. But I'm also on Instagram and Facebook and all those wonderful sites. Awesome. And of course, the website is athoughtforfood.net. That's correct. Great. Well, thank you again, Brian, for taking the time to chat with me today. I had a bunch of fun. I hope you did too. I did. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Head over to thedinnerspecial.com for recipes, highlights from every show, super blog articles, and all the wonderful ways to keep in touch on social media. Your culinary journey awaits. So let's get cooking. Mm-hmm.